The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The original sin of the internet is the naivete of founders, funders, and to some extent users of the internet that that you can create products, well-intentioned products created by well-intentioned people are always going to be used by well-intentioned users. That's simply wrong. I'm Quinta Jurassic, a senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 12th, 2023. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the information ecosystem. And we have a conversation that's been in the works for a while. Earlier this year, Brian Fishman published a fantastic paper with the Brookings Institution, thinking through how technology platforms grapple with terrorism and extremism, and how any reform to Section 230 must allow these platforms space to continue doing that work. That's the short description, but the paper is really about so much more. About how the work of content moderation actually takes place, how contemporary analyses of the harms of social media fail to address the history of how platforms addressed Islamist terror and extremism, and how we should understand the original sin of the internet. So it's great to have an opportunity to sit down and talk with Brian about his paper. Brian is the co-founder of Cinder, a software platform for the kind of trust and safety work we describe here. And he was formerly a policy director at Meta, where he led the company's work on dangerous individuals and organizations. If you enjoyed this conversation, I highly recommend reading the paper, which we'll link in the show notes. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 12th. Brian Fishman on violent extremism and platform liability. You've been on a few times before, but given what we're about to talk about, I wonder if you could start by just introducing yourself and explaining your background in this space so listeners understand where you're coming from. Uh, Yeah, sure, Quinta. Uh, My background is really as an academic uh, studying terrorism when uh, my my career in a lot of ways has been defined by the sort of post 9-11 era. I actually moved to Washington, D.C. on September 10th, 2001, after graduating from college. So 9-11 was literally my first day as a professional looking for a job um, and worked on the Hill for a while. And then after grad school, wound up teaching at a place called the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, doing research on uh, a group called Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which ultimately became the Islamic State. Uh, and after a, a, a series of stops at a think tank in D.C. and elsewhere, wound up leading the work at Facebook around dangerous organizations. Uh, The initial focus there was on uh, ISIS, uh, but it really became uh, an effort against a much wider range of of dangerous organizations. 
And now I'm the co-founder of a, a trust and safety startup called Cinder, where we're trying to to resolve some of the tooling issues that we, you know, that I think a lot of trust and safety teams face. So the paper is kind of about how platforms use existing tools and existing legal structures to counter extremist organizations. And one of the the things that you write at the very beginning is that, you know, the fact of online harms is evidence to some that the current regulatory regime should change. And then you say, I grudgingly agree, uh, but bad policy could very well make things worse. So first off, why do you agree grudgingly? (laughs) And second off, what are you concerned about in terms of bad policy? Yeah, so I think the the point that that I tried to make in a provocative way at the top of the paper is the idea that both technology and regulation are dual use. And we see that in technology all over the place. And, you know, that terminology of dual use technology comes from, you know, sort of sanctions regimes and export uh, limitation regimes uh, on things like high-speed chips and, you know, missile components and that kind of stuff. But I think this is a, a, a concept that has be gained wider sort of recognition in uh, certainly the social media space and elsewhere. The idea that when you build tools for people to use for good, other folks, and sometimes the same people, may use those tools for, uh, for ill. And the same thing goes for regulation, right? There are a series of questions facing not just social media companies, but any company that deals with user-generated content uh, that are extraordinarily vexing, right? When you're trying to balance, you know, uh, market priorities with privacy, with security, companies face very difficult challenges there. And I think many observers rightly recognize that their incentives may not always align and often do not align with what we would want them to to do with sort of a, a, a broader social perspective in mind. And so in that stead, this is what government is for. This is what regulation is for when we think private actors may not have the right incentives to make the right decisions. The danger with this, though, is that it's not clear to me at all that when we get down to brass tacks, government actors know what to do any more than the private actors do. And they may have the right incentives, but that doesn't obscure the fact that these sorts of questions about speech, about security, are just extraordinarily vexing. And that government, in a lot of ways, is not well positioned to keep up with those questions, especially as technology evolves very quickly. And in the United States in particular, the First Amendment creates real challenges for the government, rightly creates real challenges for the government to impose solutions. And so what I worry about is a regulatory regime that essentially is not going to solve all of those questions. It's going to defer much of this either to to the bureaucracy to come up with specific rules and regulations that are potentially subject to administrations that have very differing views on, on what regulation of the internet ought to look like, or it's going to create right of private action so that private actors can go after platform companies in a way that I think is likely to be abused by well-funded private actors with an ideological or even personal agenda. And so that's what I mean, where I sort of grudgingly think that we need to turn over the authority for some of these decisions to the government. 
But I'm really concerned about what the government's going to do in, the, in that stead. And I think there are some decent answers. I think the, the EU has um, taken a good stab at things with the DSA, though I don't agree with all of it. And there are big questions about what it'll actually mean. But in the United States, I think, you know, fundamentally, there are just a lot of big questions out there. And you see a lot of talk from Capitol Hill and not a lot of action. And the reason is that they don't have a lot of good answers. And uh, and I think we just have to look at that square in the face. So just to make a, a little more concrete what the kind of potential inadvertent bad outcomes could be, I think that you you have this great example of a, a extremist organization in Italy called Casa Pound, which is still on Facebook, at least as of when you wrote the paper. I don't know if it's it's been taken down since then, uh, despite the fact that it was identified by Meta as an organization that should not be on the platform. So tell me the story of Casa Pound and why that's an example of potential negative downstream effects from regulation that perhaps isn't quite thought through. Yeah, it's it's a great example. I think it's the better way to put it is that it's back on Facebook because originally Casa Pound was and still is, was designated by Facebook as a dangerous organization. Casa Pound is a neo-fascist organization that uh, centers around sort of exaltation of Mussolini and some of the ideological figures that influenced Mussolini. Uh, And it has been implicated in a a series of violent attacks against um, Roma, against immigrants uh, and others in Italy. And so I, I think under the, the sort of uh, strictures and, and the policies that Facebook has was, was rightly designated and removed. But Casa Pound sued an Italian court saying that this removal was, was unacceptable, that they didn't get, that Facebook effectively didn't have the authority to remove them. And in doing so was squelching their free speech because Casa Pound also has run candidates in local elections and and their argument boiled down to the fact that to the to the idea that that Facebook, this faraway gigantic company in California, based in California, was influencing Italian political decisions, and they won, and uh, and so Facebook was ordered by the it- Italian courts to to reinstate Casa Pound, uh, and further, uh, and this is where. You know, I'm actually not exactly sure, and the, and the paper sort of leaves this ambiguous. Facebook was ordered to pay penalties directly to Casa Pound, um, which Facebook has appealed. And Casa Pound is also making the argument that not only should their accounts be visible in Italy, where this order was made, but th- these accounts must be visible globally, suggesting that an Italian court could determine Facebook's disposition around the globe. And so I think this is a really, really important case because it's one that I think cuts against the narratives that we often see about social media companies, which is, oh, they're allowing all of this nasty content. They don't take on these, these difficult, especially you know, fascist actors. This is a case where Facebook has, and the Italian courts have said, no, 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 that's unacceptable. And not only that, but the Italian courts are asserting an authority to determine Facebook's disposition towards this group, not just in Italy, but globally. And I think when we think about a regulatory action in any country in the world, this is how they're going to, to think about it. You look at some of the, you know, the, the geographic elements of this are really important. Look at the response, some of the media articles recently about uh, folks using VPNs to circumvent Utah's recent regulatory restrictions on 
uh, on underage users of the internet. Uh, that that's why the Italian courts are saying no, no, no. Our our decision must be global because, as a practical matter, if it's not global, it's sort of meaningless. And this is what Utah is running into right now. But if we allow, if we conceptualize that every regulatory agency in the world can set global policy, effectively global policy, then these platform companies have absolutely no way to implement it. And I think, you know, in that construct, it's a place where the United States and U.S. regulators and lawmakers, by doing nothing, are ceding a tremendous amount of authority to political actors outside the United States that are going to take action. If we think that being able to regulate the internet is essentially a space for geopolitical competition, the United States is really ceding that space right now. So this is another reason why I think Congress and the administration really ought to feel as if they need to step into that gap, because if they don't, other countries are going to fill it, and they may fill it in ways that we disagree with. And so just to really drive the point home, so for listeners who are less familiar with the legal landscape, the reason that Casa Pound could not do that in a U.S. court is uh, because of, among other things, Section 230, um, which protects platforms for legal liability for choosing to take material down. But of course, there's also the First Amendment, right? Um, so just to, to play devil's advocate for a minute, why couldn't we just say, well, you know, let's say uh, some well-intentioned but ultimately not quite thought through Section 230 reform scraps Facebook's or Meta's ability to, you know, take down this material without opening itself up to liability, it could still say, you know, we we're a private entity, we have a First Amendment right to not let this material on our platform. Why isn't that sufficient? And why is it in your view that policymakers need to be more careful about thinking about the statutory element here, um, as well as the constitutional sort of backstop? Because Facebook isn't the entire internet. Uh, so much of the debate about the internet's ills focuses on Facebook, and for understandable reasons. It's obviously a gargantuan player. All sorts of terrible things happen on the platform. And so it deserves and should expect to receive that kind of scrutiny. At the same time, Facebook has resources and capabilities that most platforms only dream about. And if we create an environment where smaller companies and smaller companies that may have tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of users, but have nowhere near the sorts of sort of revenue that Facebook has to defend themselves against, you know, endless lawsuits by by, you know, various actors with an ideological or or political grudge. Then, then I think you what you're going to see is a real squelching of discourse writ large. And I think you know you the, the like the worst case scenario are the kinds of lawsuits that we saw Peter Thiel lay against Gawker, where essentially driving Gawker out of business. This is the sort of thing that I think is possible when it comes to smaller platforms, because 230 doesn't just doesn't provide you know, 230 piggybacks on the protections that the First Amendment provides. But 230 also allows platforms an easy way to get these cases dismissed so they don't have to defend themselves at length against every single case out there. And I think that that's a really important dynamic when you look beyond Facebook, beyond Google at some of those smaller platforms. And so I'm really wary of the the efforts to dismiss 230 
because I do think it will give well-capitalized organizations the ability to apply pressure on those smaller platforms. And, and, and those smaller platforms are even, you know, Twitter oftentimes gets lumped into a, a category, or at least historically. I think t- today Twitter is in its own category. But, but historically, Twitter was put in the same category with Facebook and Google because it was so, it was, it was so prominent. But it had no nothing like the resources that Facebook and Google, you know, have had over the years. And so even a company like that would be, you know, susceptible to the kind of pressure that a well-capitalized litigant could bring against it. So now that we have that on the table, I want to rewind the tape a little bit and and go back to the 1990s, um, which in your argument is kind of where we really need to start if we're going to understand the current state of online harms and the online information ecosystem, that you know we're leaving out a big part of the story. Um, if we begin the story that we're telling with, say, the rise of Facebook and contemporary social media. So why is that? Why are the 90s um, and the sort of earlier era of the internet so key to understanding what's happening online now in terms of online harms? I think there are a couple of reasons. And I, and I might even start in the 1980s, to be, to be honest. I mean, it, so I think there is... There's often a dynamic where critics of our contemporary internet, they create sort of a mythic past of the internet, you know, that existed in the 1990s, where this was pre-social media, pre-recommendation engines, pre-sort of the ad-driven business model. And, And they look to that past and the sort of vision of the John Perry Barlows of the world saying that uh, the internet is going to take lots of folks, you know, and, and remove them from the, the overbearing power of the state. It's going to herald a new era of freedom and self-expression. And in so many ways that, that vision has come to the fore and we, we see it, you know, in the United States, we see it around the world. Um, those, I, that idealistic vision of the internet, I think does exist in a lot of ways. But I think oftentimes today's contemporary critics, they look to that era and they kind of whitewash its harms as a way to create a counterpoint against the world as we see it today. But in reality, American white supremacists were using the sort of, you know, digital message boards in the early 1980s. If you look into the mid-1990s, Al-Qaeda had websites. More than half of the, the organization, the foreign terrorist organizations, you know, designated by the United States had websites like Stormfront was, you know, online and gathering users. And so I think that what we have to recognize is that extremist actors, whether they are hate groups, terrorist organizations, et cetera, adopt these sorts of technologies. They certainly adopted them in the mid-1990s. And that was before the recommendation engines that we see today. It was before the ad-based business models. And so I think this is really, this really matters because I worry that a lot of our contemporary diagnosis of what's wrong with the internet is based solely on what we look at today, rather than understanding that there are adversaries out there that will use whatever technology is available to them to advance their, their mission. Now, that doesn't mean that these other, that these sort of problematic elements, whether it's recommendation engines or ads, 
that that shouldn't be looked at. And you can imagine like scenarios where this is particularly problematic, right? Ad-based business model with LLMs, for example, could be really dangerous. At the same time, I think that that the focus on a very specific set of business practices and products has distracted from that wider understanding that there are these hostile actors out there. And I want to refocus us on that dynamic because when I look back at my time at Facebook and I think about the most dangerous actors that that I dealt with, and I think about the work that that researchers studying terrorism have noted from the very beginning, they're not looking. The most acute harms are not being produced on the platforms that are driven by recommendations. The most acute harms aren't being driven by platforms that are funded by ads. They're occurring on messaging platforms. They're occurring on Telegram. They're occurring on Signal. They're occurring in Facebook Messenger. And that sort of fundamental reality, I think, has been almost completely missed by a lot of the discourse around the harms of the contemporary internet because it's harder for researchers and harder for journalists to gather data on those on those platforms. And they have to do research and they have to sort of write stories based on information they can access. And I think that that has led in a lot of ways to a misdiagnosis of where this sort of harm comes from and a misdiagnosis of, of how it manifests. Um, and so I think, look, the, the lesson from my perspective is we have to make sure that every platform understands that its tools can be abused. And that if you sidestep, you don't get to sidestep that responsibility just by funding yourself, but through something other than ads, you don't get to sidestep that responsibility just because you are not dependent on recommendation engines. If you're building a platform that is going to have user generated content, you have very significant responsibilities to make sure that they aren't abused by actors that are, that have a direct and purposeful intent to create real social harm, violence in the real world in, in many cases. And that, but that's not the only one, right? You can think about child safety, you can think about all sorts of things. But I worry that our sort of contemporary social media critics have focused so narrowly on those elements and haven't looked at the history of these harms online that they've essentially created a moral hazard in Silicon Valley for folks that don't have those sorts of business models, don't have those sorts of products. And, and I want to make sure that everybody understands those risks. Fundamentally, we all have a piece, we, you know, we all have responsibilities here. And I think that that has gotten lost ironically in part because of the criticism of, of a few technology companies and a few specific types of products. And so when it comes to those types of products, the, the, Features that you've referenced are algorithmic amplification, um, and we've seen a lot of that recently, obviously, with uh, oral arguments in Gonzalez versus Google, which has to do with whether or not Section 230 uh, shields platforms from liability for algorithmic amplification. Um, a lot of discussion around, for example, um, Instagram's algorithms and whether they're harming teenage girls' body image. We have also seen, as you say, a lot of discussion around you know whether the sort of ad-based 
uh, model for funding the digital ecosystem is is healthy. And you've been very gracious and haven't mentioned specific names, but I will point to one company that you you did name um, in your paper, which is Substack, which specifically uh, the founders wrote initially that uh, ads in their view were the the original sin of the internet that they kind of create an environment that's focused around uh, grabbing and selling attention and that their platform was going to be different because they were going to base it on a subscription model and that that would create you know different social dynamics and of course what we have seen since Substack launched uh, to Grade a Plum a few years ago is that the platform has kind of increasingly become mired in disputes about what material should be allowed on it. Now, I will say I use Substack. I subscribe to Substacks. Um, I have a Substack. Uh, so my, my hands are, are not clean here. Um, but I do think that that is a, a useful example to make what you're saying a little more concrete. Yeah, no, I mean, I look, I did, you know, I I used some of those comments by the Substack founder in this paper, who who talked about the original sin being ad based business models. And that's not the original sin of the internet. The original sin of the internet is the naivete of founders, funders, and to some extent, users of the internet, that that you can create products, well-intentioned products created by well-intentioned people are always going to be used by well-intentioned users. That's simply wrong. It is like full stop wrong. Like hostile users are going to use your products and they're going to use your products, whether or not you are selling ads to fund them or are using recommendation engines. And as a result, you need to figure out what you're going to do when those hostile users use those products. Um, and they're going to use them. They're going to use the features to advance their own interests. And oftentimes they're going to use features that everybody else uses to advance their interests. And I think that sort of fundamental truth is, is both really frustrating because it makes it a lot harder to solve things, right? You're using Substack and all sorts of people use Sub. Substack is a net benefit in the world, even if it has these downsides, Right. And so I like I don't want to be in a position and I'm certainly not making the argument that these products are should be we should get rid of them or that they should be you know banned or whatever. I don't think that I think that the Internet is a net benefit to society. I think that these products are a net benefit to society. But I do think that that these companies have a real responsibility to recognize that there are going to be hostile actors out there who are going to abuse the tools that they built to advance really nefarious agendas. And that when you're in the business of building tools, you have to also be in the business of understanding how that they will, how they will be abused because they will be. Uh, and that's the point that I think many critics of contemporary big tech have actually facilitated that kind of moral hazard by making this very feature-based argument. And I, and I think it's a mistake because I think those features and those business models are going to change over time. But the responsibility that founders, funders, and early adopters have is not. We all have a responsibility when these new sorts of tools come out to make sure that they are developed and used in responsible ways. And focusing specifically and narrowly on a couple of features is a mistake in my view. So you came to Meta with a, a background in studying terrorism. Can you talk a little bit about 
what it looked like to try to combat terrorism from your position within the platform um, and how you kind of used the the lessons that you're deriving from, you know, the sort of the 80s and, and 90s into developing the platform's policies? Yeah, I think, you know, I think one of the most interesting, you know, Facebook had a set of policies in place when I got there. I, I started at Facebook in early 2016. And the mission at that point was really to, to deal with ISIS. Platforms had been extremely slow, in my mind, to get serious about dealing with, with Al-Qaeda and, and the sort of emergent Islamic State. Yeah, all of them were. Um, and Facebook sort of had its, its you know, come to Jesus moment in 2015 and, and hired me in 2016 as a function of that. And I think, you know, the interesting thing about this was was less the, the development of the policy itself, but the development of, of our early strategy for dealing with that organization in particular, because I think there are some lessons there. You've got a couple of different ways to approach these hostile actors. One is, you know, you can be reactive when a user says something is bad. You can take a look at it and you can sort of do those sorts of things. You can try to understand and build up AI to identify things proactively and, and sort of approach it from that perspective, which is which is good and useful. But the thing that we did first off in dealing with ISIS was we built an intelligence cycle. So ISIS has a very specific ways that it operates. It would distributes um, and it, it has for years, um, but it would distribute propaganda on Telegram first. And so we would gather that information using vendors on Telegram, process it internally so that we could put their propaganda into our internal detection systems even before their operatives were uploading it to Facebook. And so this was an intelligence cycle. And I, you know, I'd spent time, you know, teaching at West Point, I'd seen some of the, the intelligence cycles and operational cycles that, that the US military developed over the years. And I was inspired by those to say, look, if we can just operate really quickly in understanding this propaganda from its sort of core distribution point on Telegram, then we can defend ourselves even before, you know, ISIS's supporters start putting this stuff up on Facebook. And in a broad general sense, that worked. I mean, it didn't work perfectly. And we certainly saw, you know, ISIS operatives um, react to this by trying to move more quickly and do, you know, I mean, it's a cat and mouse game always. But I think that there, what it illustrated is that if you really understand the actors that you're dealing with, it opens up different ways of thinking about how you can counter them. And, and look, over time, we built, you know, really sophisticated AI that would catch a lot of this kind of stuff as well, you know, and, and we're going to see more of that with the, the sort of advance of LLMs and the, the, the sort of ease of adopting more sophisticated tools by a wider range of platforms. But I think that, you know, when you go after these groups, it really helps to have subject matter expertise in how they operate. And I think, you know, fundamentally, when I first got to Facebook, that's why I was hired. And that's what I was able to bring to their operations was an understanding of how these sort of core groups would function. Now, I think it's worth noting, though, you can't be an expert on everything. And we started with ISIS, but then you, you know, we wanted to adapt those techniques to a much wider range of organizations, both international terrorist organizations, but also a range of different hate groups in, in various places around the world. And they don't all operate the same. And so I think that is the counterpoint 
um, to this argument about really understanding the groups you're dealing with in a granular way is that works when you've got an extraordinarily high priority problem like deal with ISIS on Facebook. It doesn't work as well when your problem is deal with all of the extremist and hate groups and terrorist organizations in the world on Facebook because they all operate very differently. And so you have to sort of approach it from a different perspective at that point. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back 
and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Yeah, so how, how did the techniques that you were using change as the threat shifted? I mean, over the the time that you were there, sort of general focus on extremism shifted really from ISIS to far-right extremism in the United States. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you were at Meta through January 6th. So obviously there was a, a lot going on in, in that space. Did you change how you were thinking about addressing these issues based on the, the actors who were involved, as you've described? Well, I think that you there are, there are some basic principles in, in play. I think one of the things you've seen with Meta's dangerous organizations policy over time is that it has grown more nuanced. I mean, it, fundamentally, that is a, a very blunt policy. It, it, you're not allowed to praise, support, or represent the sort of the core organizations that that uh, Meta designates. Over time, what you saw was the development of policies around, you know, especially in 2020, around you know violence-inducing conspiracy networks, which is policy that was applied to to QAnon. Policies applied to militia organizations that may not have had a, a core track record of violence in the real world, but that were sort of organized around uh, the possibility of civic violence. And so, you know, those policies had slightly sort of, you know, more nuanced ways to approach them, right, where you weren't, you know, you weren't disallowing all praise, for example, in those cases, but you weren't going to allow them to organize on the platform, and now I think there's this broader question, you know, the, the Facebook Oversight Board is now debating this question of, of whether, you know, the term Shahid, which is often translated as, as referring to somebody as a martyr, if, you know, to referring to somebody listed onto the dangerous organization's policy as a Shahid, if that should be considered praise and removed. And so I think you see Facebook and Facebook sent this to the oversight board because this is a really vexing question and it's a good use of the oversight board. You know, but I think what you see is Facebook trying to get more nuanced over time as the sort of core question is not just ISIS, 
it is a much wider range of organizations. And I think it's, it's, you know, that's not just American white supremacist groups. That's also groups around the world that have significant bases of support and a social function. So that's Lebanese Hezbollah, that is Hamas, that is groups that I think certainly qualify as terrorist organizations, but that also have real social functions, you know, and that are discussed, and those social functions are discussed by users on Facebook sometimes. And you get this question of whether or not uh, that should be allowed or not. Those are the kinds of questions that I think lots of lots of companies deal with and Facebook is sort of wrestling with now. And I think the the question of uh, of Shahid is is, you know, sort of foremost in my mind because the oversight board is looking at it at the moment. Yeah, I mean, just to throw out another example, I remember um, after the U.S. assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, there was an instance in which some Instagram posts were taken down because Iranians were discussing Soleimani's having been assassinated um, in the post, and and it was flagged as them praising Soleimani. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, you know, and that one's complicated as well, because, you know, and these are, these are... These are complicated by the fact that many of these groups are sanctioned in the United States. And so support and representation, these groups may not use uh, social media tools and you can't sort of, you know, substantively advance their mission by, you know, fundraising or doing those sorts of things. And, And that's an easy thing for me to say, but distinguishing between praise and support support being potentially material support that is, you know, disallowed by the sanctions regimes and praise simply being saying something nice about these folks. It may seem like that's a simple distinction to make at scale on a platform like Facebook. That's a very difficult distinction to make uh, accurately and consistently. And, And those are questions that I'm sure the teams there continue to struggle with. So this leads to another point that you reference in in your paper, which is the overlap between how organizations like Meta identify dangerous organizations that they don't want on their platform or that are restricted from using the platform in some way, and the way that governments like the United States uh, designate organizations, for example, as foreign terrorist organizations. Um, And one of your points is that platforms are often more capable of being more aggressive and more sort of expansively aggressive in in who they identify um, in pushing back against groups that are identified as harmful or extremist in some way than governments are. So why is that? And what are the implications of that for how we think about platform regulation? Yeah, it's a really it's uh, it's a really good question, Quinta. I mean, I think that it's it's counterintuitive for a lot of folks, but because of the, you know, the public narrative around the the broad public narrative around Facebook's approach to white supremacist organizations and in groups like that. But Facebook's approach to these kinds of groups is far more expansive and aggressive than any governments, than any collection of government, of Western governments. Right. And um, the number of groups that Facebook prohibits is far broader Um, the scope of what it prohibits about those groups is far broader than what governments can address. And, and I think that's a, you know, 
Facebook's list is probably the, the broadest and most comprehensive operational list of extremist groups in use by any organization. That said, the comparison that I'm making between a private actor and government actors is, is, is strained to begin with, right? Because government actors have a, a, a wholly different set of obligations in part because of their ability to imprison people and their, they are, you know, are, ought to, ought to be sort of defending broader principles than simply, you know, uh, including free speech. And so I, and, you know, and in the United States, the First Amendment limits, fundamentally limits what the government can and should do, and, and rightly so. And so I think there are two things are true at once. You know, Facebook has gone far beyond what governments can and should do. But that doesn't mean that they've necessarily gone far enough. Private actors have a responsibility to make sure that their tools and the spaces that they control and create are welcoming to everybody, enabling or allowing groups like white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and others um, to operate in them is, uh, is fundamentally hostile to others and creates a, a, an environment that can be considered hostile to others. And I think private, private actors have a responsibility. Where this really matters, though, is that governments, um, I think at some points, have wanted private actors to take action against those sorts of groups. And that's a really tricky place to be because you don't want a private actor like a platform taking action on behalf of a government when the government doesn't have legal authority to take action. You don't want an environment where, where a government is essentially creating a liability regime for that platform because they don't actually have the ability to make something illegal, right? If And, and this is the kind of thing that the, the British were looking at with the online harms bill, where they had this concept of legal but harmful, where there were certain organizations and certain types of speech they were deemed legal, but they wanted to create liability for platforms because that material was harmful. You know, ultimately, a lot of that language has been removed from the bill. And I think rightfully so. If governments are going to take action based on the nature of a speaker or the type of speech, that needs to be really transparent. That needs to be out in the open. It needs to be debated at a social level. It needs to be vetted by the courts. And I think it is quite dangerous, the notion that that this the legal but harmful concept that the UK was debating, where our government could potentially be creating liability for that private actor without making the speech itself illegal. And I think that, you know, the only way for platforms to really defend themselves and defend the notion of free speech in these setting in these situations is to have policies of sort of radical transparency around any communication with governments about these sorts of questions. And uh, and that's where I'd like to see platforms go more and more is anytime you get a platform gets communication out of normal channels, out of a normal sort of user reporting channels, whether that's from a government or from an NGO or from a journalist, that leads to actions on the platform itself, even if those actions are taken as a function of platform policy, those are things that ought to be disclosed. And you'll note that I, I, I included NGOs in there because I think sometimes this pressure coming from human rights organizations, activist groups 
is just as intense as it is when it comes from governments. And and I, and folks will say, well, yeah, but but those kind of organizations don't have the levers of, of power that governments have, and that's definitely true. But they do have the ability to get all, generate a ton of bad press, and that is a form of real power. It can be abused, and platforms ought to have policies um, of radical transparency around any of these sort of out of channel uh, engagements that lead to actions on the platform. So transparency and, and the need for clarity around platform obligations, as you said, is one of your big recommendations that, you know, rather than thinking about tweaking 230, we should be thinking about making sure that we're getting what we need in terms of that transparency. Um, but you you set out some other recommendations as well. One that has to do with sort of thinking about these platforms um, on a uh, sort of higher altitude systemic level, and then uh, one that has to do with a surface-based approach. So let's start with the sort of the high altitude issue, um, which which you describe as a system, not anecdote. Um, what do you mean by that, and why is it important? Yeah, what what I mean by that is is that you want to take an approach similar to what I think the DSA is trying to do in in the EU, where you don't want to create liability for platforms based on single or aggregated instances where they fail because they are going to fail, right? So you don't want an environment where if, if Facebook says, you know, Facebook, just to, to, just as an example, Facebook says, you know, we're not going to allow the KKK on our platform. And some group comes along and says, we found the KKK on your platform. You've lied to us. There is liability associated with that. The reason why, and you can imagine various various incarnations of, of that idea, including, well, we found 100 versions of the KKK on your platform, right? I think that building liability based on anecdote, even if it's a series of anecdotes, is going to be really tricky and, and rife for abuse because platforms are going to be wrong. They are going to have an error rate. Fundamentally, always, there's going to be an error rate. And so what you really want is you want platforms to be establishing that they have a series of processes in place that are responsible and in accordance with best practices as determined by whoever the regulator is. Now, I think there are some tricky questions there because best practices are going to change and evolve much more quickly than regulators are going to update regulations. Um, and so I think, you know, I, that, you know, we should be thinking about and platforms should be thinking about how do they treat regulations as sort of the floor, not the ceiling. We'll see whether that actually happens. But I think you've got this, you, you know, you've got this dynamic where, you want to make sure that platforms are putting in these systems rather than holding them accountable for single failures or collections of single failures, because that process of identifying those failures is part of the process of getting better. And, and we see this in other places in this, you know, cybersecurity context. There are lots of scenarios where, you know, you've got bug bounties and you have these sorts of things. And those are kinds of processes that I think the trust and safety world should adopt but not as a matter of holding them liable from a regulatory perspective. 
Yeah, I remember early in the days of uh, increased reporting on content moderation, there was a a spate of stories, which I I remember seeing people refer to derogatorily as hall monitor journalism of kind of holding up, you know, aha, there's a racist post here. (laughs) And there is there may be some value to that. But as you say, it it risks really uh, missing the forest for the trees, I think. And and Quinta, sometimes, you know, I'm sorry to interject, but no, not at all. You know, but sometimes what happens there is that hall monitor journalism winds up focusing platforms on the things that are most visible, not the things that are most dangerous. And this gets back to my point about messaging platforms before. Oftentimes, the things that are most dangerous, that point to the most acute real world harms, are not the ones that are making it into the newspaper. They're not the ones that are get, you know, getting amplified by a recommendation engine. And I and I realize that I'm saying something there that I think cuts against a lot of the mainstream discourse about this. It is true nonetheless. And what I worry about is scenarios where you get sort of the incentives for sort of hall monitor journalism or hall monitor regulation that actually sidesteps and ignores the sorts of things that platforms might do uh, around content movements, actors that they have visibility into, but public actors do not. And I think that's a real, you know, I experienced that at Facebook. I think it is a very real risk. And so I think the kinds of approaches that I think the DSA is is focused towards, you know, of trying to ensure that these platforms have real systems in place is the right general approach. So let's talk next about surfaces. What What is a surface uh, beyond, you know, the surface of my desk on which I'm resting my coffee cup? Um, and why do you think that it's a better model for thinking about transparency and online safety? Yeah. Th- so uh, when I think about a, a surface, this is any component of a digital system where a user can generate content. And so... This is something that is more granular. And again, I, I'll use Facebook as an example because it's what I know best, not because they are the only part of the only issue. But it's this is even more granular than something like, okay, you've got your Facebook newsfeed and you've got Facebook Marketplace, right? Within a newsfeed, you've got, you know, you've got a username, you've got a post, you have a comment, you have the about section of your profile. You have the photos that you can associate with your profile. All of those different things are surfaces because they are places where a user can generate content. And as a practical matter, if we approach this as a paranoid maniac, as I am, and as I think we ought to, then, then all of those spaces are potential vectors for harm. And what's important about this is that you can set up defensive systems if you are a platform, detection, whether it's detection systems and review systems, whatever else it is, that work on some of those surfaces, but do not actually work at all on the others. And so what we want, one of the core things we want to do as we think about you know, incentivizing platforms to develop effective systemic sort of solutions for minimizing harm is we want to incentivize them to make sure that they've got detection and review and all of these sorts of uh, sort of protections in place across all of those surfaces. And so my thought process is to, if we're going to require increased transparency and really try to understand this systemic 
you know, steps that platforms have taken in order to protect their platforms, we actually really want to have information about what they're doing across all of those services, not just allow them to say, hey, we've got uh, image hash detection and we're, you know, we've got a list of keywords that we're looking for. Because if you do that, then maybe those things are working on one platform, but not an, or one surface, but not another. Um, and that means that you're leaving some surfaces totally undefended. And so this is why I think surface, you know, is, is an important way to think about it. One of the things I do in the paper, though, even though I advocate for the, the sort of use of surfaces here, is to say that, that using this framework is going to be, would be really onerous for platforms, I think, especially at the beginning, because it would require platforms to A, identify all of those surfaces and sort of really go through a rigorous process of saying, well, here's what we're doing on this one and this one, but not that one, et cetera. And we have to decide whether we want to require that level of granularity in platform disclosures about the sorts of trust and safety protections that they're putting in place. And it might be easy to say, yeah, we do want to impose that kind of granularity. And I, you know, and I think I do, but actually imposing that level of granularity and supervising the responses so that that kind of reporting is actually meaningful requires a real bureaucratic commitment by any government that wants to do it. And we're starting to see that out of the EU, out of the UK, where they are investing significant resources into new bureaucracies to, to do the monitoring for their new regulatory regimes. But I think that would be really controversial in the United States. It would be expensive. It's not clear where that should be hosted. And uh, it's not clear that either the EU or the UK even though they've applied significant resources, have applied enough. We just don't know yet. And so I think that the, the sort of surface-based approach, in my mind, maps to the incentives that we actually want to create for these platforms, more so than like a user-based incentive, you know, or, you know, like the DSA creates new obligations depending on your monthly active users in the EU. And well, you can understand why they're doing it this way, right? If, the, if you're a larger platform, you should have increased obligations. But sometimes larger platforms don't actually have a lot of resources. Sometimes larger platforms, you know, we don't want to disincentivize companies to grow. Um, does that do so? And in my mind, the surface-based approach matches to the way threats actually manifest better and creates the incentives that we actually want to create for the platforms, which are hopefully productive incentives rather than, rather than you know, punitive incentives. So I would be remiss not to ask you about the hot topic of the moment, which of course is generative AI. Um, and you, you talk a little bit in the paper about the sort of promises and pitfalls of, of using AI for uh, this kind of trust and safety work. But I'm, I'm curious whether the explosion of ChatGPT onto the scene has changed your view at all. You know, how, how likely is it that ChatGPT will be able to uh, help companies in this kind of content moderation work? So I think that, that products like ChatGPT will help uh, companies. You know, major companies use AI today um, and have for years. 
There are uh, a number of companies that provide sort of off-the-shelf classifiers um, to try to identify hate speech and these sorts of things. Um, the difference with LLMs, I think, is is twofold. One, you know, you you engage with them via natural language rather than setting firm thresholds for uh, the likelihood that something violates, and and that is. Uh, a little bit of a, a difference, and I think actually may facilitate better sort of regulatory engagement because lawyers are used to talking, uh, using natural language, I think, more effectively than, than setting, you know, uh, hard percentages for, you know, how often is it okay that your hate speech classifier removes content that is not actually hate speech? Uh, if you're trying to figure that out with a traditional AI model, you have to pick a number. How often? Uh, if you're doing that with an LLM, it's a little bit fuzzier, at least with a lot of the LLMs that exist today. Now that may change. But I think the other and more fundamental thing that the LLMs are going to do is that they respond, they can respond to a written prompt, policy prompt. So you can say, okay, here is my definition of hate speech. Use it to assess the content that is coming through my platform. And Facebook might have one definition and Google might have another and Substack might have another or whatever it is. And the same LLM can be used to make slightly different decisions based on the precise guidance of those different platforms. And that's a little bit different than, than retraining a model on its own, you know, where you have to go through and sort of have a human being make decisions based on all of those different policy frameworks, and then use that data to retrain the model. With these modern LLMs, they can just read the policy itself. And where this really gets interesting and exciting, I think, for trust and safety teams is that it potentially really speeds up the process of iteration. Because oftentimes, you know, and this is a, this is a great challenge for especially a big company like Facebook, you develop a policy you develop some guidance for reviewers, but you don't actually know whether your, whether your policy and that guidance is any good until you've run a very complex test where you've sent out that guidance, you've translated it into multiple languages, you've had uh, a bunch of reviewers in lots of different places review it. That process is really slow. Now, there's probably bureaucratic things that can be done to make it faster, but overall, that process is really slow. If you can have LLMs do some of the iteration for you by looking at different versions of a policy, look at different versions of you know, guidance to reviewers and, and run through a set of prompts really quickly, then you can actually update things and iterate more quickly. That's a really important capability when you're dealing with adversarial actors, whether they are extremist organizations, terrorist groups, you know, fraud rings, whatever it is, that are iterating really, really fast. And I think that's one of the dynamics that you see here is that historically, the attackers on the internet iterate more quickly than the defenders, generally speaking. One of the promises of LLMs is not just scale, though it is scale also for the defenders, but it's also the ability to iterate that guidance more quickly and keep pace with some of those attackers. Now, this is obviously going to be 
um, counterposed against the reality that those attackers are going to use these LLMs too. And, you know, I think lots has been written and lots has been said about the potential for uh, disinformation and uh, spam or, you know, more broadly. Uh, But I do think there are real opportunities here for the defenders of the internet also. That's really interesting. So I want to close by just asking sort of uh, zooming out a little and thinking more about the particular moment we're in. I think you've just made a pretty strong case for how generative AI and LLMs are not necessarily spelling doom for everyone, but might offer some really exciting new possibilities. Um, At the same time, when I look at the landscape right now of how major platforms are thinking about trust and safety issues, I worry that we're in the bit of some kind of a retrenchment where uh, you alluded to Elon Musk's Twitter takeover earlier. Obviously, Twitter's trust and safety team is pretty much disintegrated. The platform is in in freefall. Musk seems set on making it uh, a happy, friendly place for many, many hateful folks to be. Um, Trust and safety teams across the rest of the industry have been really, really hurt by waves and waves of layoffs. Um, And there's a general sort of political skepticism on the right um, that's received increasing attention in Congress of the project of content moderation at all and sort of terming that censorship. And so I think you've set out a really compelling framework for how to think through these issues here. And yet I worry that we're sort of at a moment where we're facing, if not a a backlash, some kind of reaction against um, this sort of project of improving the health of online spaces. So I'm curious what you think of that. And maybe maybe I'm wrong to begin with, but how how you kind of would situate this discussion in this particular moment? Yeah, I, so I think you know I don't have a perfect answer, Quinta. I think there is there is a backlash going on to to some extent, right? I mean, you and you see it with you see it in with Twitter, and you, but I don't think that's the whole story. I think you know Twitter's great power in my mind has always primarily been the ability to influence sources of power. Right, the mainstream media, the political class, um, etc., especially in U.S. political discourse, and so I think it does have an outsized place as a, as a function of that that dynamic. I think that as platforms lay folks off and downsize, this will have an impact, and there's just no sugarcoating that reality. It's going to have an impact, um, not just at Twitter but elsewhere. At the same time, I think that there are. Um, the trust and safety as a sort of professional uh, focus is getting more sophisticated all of the time. You know, five years ago, I think um, the most sophisticated in a lot of ways, you know, I, I, I was always thinking that the debates we were having internally at Facebook were more sophisticated and thoughtful than the ones that were happening outside of Facebook, right? At least the ones I could see outside of Facebook. Now, I think that public discourse has caught up in a lot of ways. I think there's, and that's because there's a lot of folks that have come out of trust and safety teams and you've got groups like the Trust and Safety Professional Association and the Integrity Institute and and others that are trying to bring these discussions into more mainstream discourse and bringing some of that internal discourse to it. You've also seen people come out of these companies and move into regulatory positions that I think, you know, not just in the United States, but outside of the United States that I hope will uh, improve some of that discussion. But the other piece of this is that 
everybody in the trust and safety world now, like there has always been regulation sort of, you know, in the background for trust and safety operations. In, in, in my world, it's been sort of sanctions of, of foreign terrorist organizations primarily. But there's been obviously rules about, you know, uh, child sexual abuse material and everything else. But now you, you've got everybody trying to figure out what to do with the DSA. And so there is an external framework that is driving focus on trust and safety that didn't exist before, right? Before, I think you had a dynamic where everybody or many companies could sort of sit in the shadow of Facebook and Facebook took a lot of the heat and and rightfully so in in many ways, but took a lot of the heat for um, the industry as a whole. And now there is an obligation that that creates that creates uh, requirements for everybody, and so you know I noticed this uh, a shift in this maybe three or four months ago, where in Silicon Valley I felt like there was a real change in the way many companies start were thinking about the DSA, where all of a sudden everybody sort of stood up and said, oh, we're going to have to really get ready for this thing in you know in twenty twenty four. And, and you start to see that. And I see that in, in conversations as, you know, as, as a founder of a company that helps deal with some of these things. Right. And so I do think that there are countervailing pressures right now. Uh, and it's not totally clear how that's all going to shake out, um, whether some of the, the, the financial constraints and the ideological constraints that folks like Elon Musk represent, how those are going to interact with sort of the legal pressures and the uh, the unclear and ambiguous implications of the DSA. But I do think that we're not in a place where we were five years ago, where the only thing that mattered was how much do companies care about this? Now it's how much do companies care about this and what happens to them if they don't show up? Because now there are some consequences out there. And nobody's quite sure exactly how those consequences will play out or exactly what the rules will be once the, the EU figures figures all of it out. But I do think that they're, they've created some pressure that the industry is hearing. Let's leave it there. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Quinta. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, a Lawfare podcast series on the information ecosystem. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.